Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased today to welcome Jeffrey Keel to the podcast. Jeffrey is a climate scientist and a Jungian analyst. He's a senior scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in the United States and an adjunct professor at UC Santa Cruz, and he's carried out research on climate change for some 40 years. His main interests today are in the areas of eco-psychology, an interdisciplinary field that focuses on the synthesis of ecology and psychology and the promotion of sustainability. Jeffrey is the author of the book, Facing Climate Change, An Integrated Path to the Future, which provides a Jungian perspective on climate change. So thank you very much, Jeffrey, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Well, thank you, Fergal. It's great to be here. Yes. Well, I'm very much looking forward to talking to you today about your journey as a scientist, as a depth mm-hmm. psychologist, about your book and get some of your thoughts and reflections on our current environmental predicaments. If you wouldn't mind just to to set the scene a little bit, because it's an interesting story, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you do today? Absolutely. I guess I have a unique background in that I'm both a climate scientist and also a Jungian analyst. Uh, That's a very odd combination that most people would Uh, look at and wonder how did that happen. And um, so the story is that I actually trained originally in physics, theoretical physics, and then transitioned into doing climate science and uh, have been doing research in in the field of climate science for 40 years now. I'm about to retire from that, that world in a few months. But it's been quite a journey in terms of the the problems that I've looked at, I've had the privilege of working with a, a number of really astounding scientists over the years on on some really interesting problems, including things like ozone depletion and 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 global warming or climate change. So uh, that that was a path that I was on. I was work. I was a scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado, and. and was doing quite well there. And uh, I was also curiously interested in mythology, myths, origin stories in particular, narratives that talk about, you know, where do we come from? How did we get here? Where are we going? And the person who I was reading at the time was, uh, you know, one of the foremost mythologists, Joseph Campbell. This was in the early 80s, mid 80s. And in reading Campbell, the name Carl Jung kept coming up. So I became interested in what Jung had to say. And I started to read the works of Carl Jung. I actually started to read those uh, over 30 years ago when I was on a sabbatical to Cambridge University in Cambridge, England for a year. And at that time, I also was interested in actually doing analysis, Jungian analysis. Uh, I was in a point in my life where I was looking for some answers that I couldn't find on my, my own. 
So when I returned to the United States, I started analysis. I also wanted to experience what Jung was writing about rather than just intellectually reading his books. And so along that journey, at the same time I was doing my climate research, uh, I was in analysis. And it's in that journey that I started to have uh, significant dreams that were pushing me more and more into the direction of becoming an analyst. I, I actually resisted that uh, quite a bit. I was quite satisfied with my career as a scientist, but uh, the psyche was relentless in its push on me. <laughs> <laughs> and one thing that you learn in uh, the Jungian world is um, you pay a price if you if you ignore the the messages of, of psyche that uh, if your unconscious is presenting you with, you know, information, you should heed it and at least try to understand what it's trying to tell you. So I eventually caved in uh, and my ego was able to accept the fact that I needed to, to become an analyst. So I, I actually had to go back to school and get a degree in psychology first, a master's in psychology and developed clinical skills and then applied and was accepted into a Jungian training program. And that's a six, that's a six year journey at least uh, to go through that training program. And at the same time, of course, I'm doing my science. So I've got these two worlds that I'm holding the, the scientific world of climate research and the world of training to become a, a psychoanalyst. It was an interesting uh, life to live, lots of tension between those two worlds, uh, but I was able to hold it together, you know, especially with strong support from my family. And when I got out, when I graduated from uh, the training program, I was still holding these two entities uh, separate. You know, I would do the day job of climate science and then, you know, see see clients uh, uh, in analysis uh, in the late afternoon and evenings. And when I would give talks, I would either give a talk as a Jungian analyst or I'd give a talk as uh, a climate scientist. But then there came a time when I recognized that these two could be brought together, uh, that there was actually an important uh, message in combining uh, Jungian uh, psychology with uh, understanding climate change. And, uh, and that really came at a, in a significant moment in my life when I was sitting in my office at, at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, and I was looking at some projected climate changes out at the end of the 21st century. And I asked my question, myself, you know, well, carbon dioxide levels for this, these projections are going to be about 900,000 uh, parts per million, roughly over three times what the pre-industrial levels of carbon dioxide uh, were. And I was curious to, you know, what that meant. You know, you can use these numbers, 300 parts per million, 1,000 parts per million, but you need a context for that. You need some sort of re reference. Uh, scientists need that. And certainly people in the, in the public sphere 
those numbers don't really mean much unless you've got some sort of uh, context. And for me, the context was when was the last time in Earth's history that the atmosphere had that much carbon dioxide in it? So I decided I I I was looking through the literature, the paleoclimate literature, and there are reconstructions of carbon dioxide levels in in Earth's past. And it turned out that, you know, the reconstructions at that time, you had to go back to about 40 million years in Earth's history until you reached those levels of carbon dioxide. And then, of course, the follow-on question is, well, what was the climate of the Earth like 40 million years ago? And it was extremely warm. There was no ice at either pole. Uh, you had crocodiles living at, uh, up uh, in the, near the Arctic Circle, palm trees growing in northern Canada. It was a world unlike anything that the human species has experienced and, and, and some other species as well. So that really was like a wake-up call for me, that in uh, a mere 80 or 90 years, we were accelerating Earth's climate into a state that it hadn't, has not experienced for 40 million years. So the rate of change uh, is unprecedented, what humans are doing to the planet. And this triggered for you some kind of bringing together the Jungian and the scientific perspective. Yes, that was the, the moment where I asked myself, why are we doing this? I mean, from a rash, purely rational perspective, we have understood the science, uh, the basic science of climate change for over a century. You know, the first papers yeah. around this issue were pa- published in the Eight to 1850s, 1860s. And yeah. Probably one of the more definitive papers was in 1896, was that's Arrhenius's paper, where he asked the question, how much would the planet warm if I doubled CO2? And, you know, so the science here is not new science. It's, it's, it's rooted in, you know, basic physics that goes back well over a century. What do you think that a, a depth psychology perspective, and in particular a Jungian perspective, brings to bear on thinking about climate change? Well, yeah, a, a depth perspective immediately uh, opens the, the door to what is the unconscious, what role is the unconscious playing in our behavior towards ourselves, to each other, uh, to the planet? Uh, that's really the the thing that depth psychology brings to the table is uh, right. What do you mean by unconscious here? Well, um, we now know, and this is not just uh, Jungian psychology. This is modern neuroscience that a tremendous amount of uh, our uh, thinking, our processing of information our emotional and affective reactions to the world are carried out in parts of the brain that are not in the conscious realm. They are uh, taking place in a completely unconscious state. Okay. And so there's a tremendous amount of our interaction, our processing, our reaction, our behavior 
uh, toward the world that are ca- being carried out in an unconscious in unconscious processes. Right. So it's incumbent for us to understand those. You know, the the simplistic approach to this was, uh, and I you know I was around when these discussions were taking place in the seventies. You know, the the scientific community was essentially saying. Okay, you know, we figured this out. We now know, you know, if we continue to burn fossil fuels and increase carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the planet's going to warm. So we'll present that scientific information to the policymakers, we'll present it to the governments, and they'll, you know, the rational action, uh, a reaction to that would be we've got to, you know, uh, wean ourselves off of fossil fuels. It's a very simplistic, rational-based, you know, cognitive linear approach to uh, understanding human behavior. And unfortunately, human behavior doesn't work that way. Human behavior in our in our reaction to the world is not only linear, cognitive, rational. It includes processes that are completely non-rational, that are completely non-linear, that are imagistic that are metaphoric. And these are the parts of the brain that uh, work in the unconscious state. Okay. I'm interested here in, you're talking about a depth psychology perspective, and this operates presumably at an individual level. I'm interested in looking at that maybe at a, at a broader level, at a social Mm -hmm. level, but also I would be interested in what you think a Jungian perspective distinctively brings to bear on looking at these problems. So neuroscience tells us, you know, the unconscious is a, playing an important role in how we perceive the world and how we react to the world, how we behave towards the world. But what, what does Jungian psychology bring to the picture? Well, Jung uh, realized very early in his clinical work that our mind, our psyches work in terms of images, and those images have tremendous affect associated with them. And he gave a name to those, uh, those, that process. One of the names is a complex, okay? And it, individuals can have complexes, okay? We can get caught up in, in a highly emotional state and act irrationally in the moment. We can be triggered by something, an outside stimulus, and find ourselves behaving in ways that rationally we would not behave. And where do those complexes arise? Well, they arise in the individual through uh, the child's development, the traumas that a child experiences, the, the relationship that a child has with its parents. This is the, these are the formative stages of complexes that we carry into adulthood. That's the individual. What we, what we also recognize, or the Jungian community also recognizes, is those complexes can, can actually uh, work at a collective level, at a social level. And this is a social, so-called cultural complex level. And these are the belief systems that a whole group, a whole society, a whole nation can, can start to invest uh, and believe in. And, and those can also act in a highly non-rational way, such that you can provide people with factual information and the group will reject it because it challenges their belief system. It challenges their uh, way of living in the world. An example of this, especially for the United States, 
is uh, a cultural complex that is extremely important in the psyche of, of the people who live in the United States is that of independence. You know, this nation was fought a war over 200 years ago for its independence. It's strongly invested in that belief system. And so what, what comes with that? What comes with that is I, as an individual, have the right to choose how I live my life, which includes things like the size of the car I buy, the, the size of the house I build, how much energy I, I use in my life, how much I consume, how much I can buy, how much I can own. All of those things are my individual right. No one should, can challenge that. So along comes a problem that, that transcends that, a problem like climate change, where we collectively need to change our behaviors. We can collectively need to consume less. We cannot rely on fossil fuels in the, in the future. So you have a governmental structure that's coming in and saying, no, you can't do that. You can't buy that size of car. You have to buy a car that gets so many miles per gallon. You have to use a certain source of energy. Well, that is going to trigger, constellate that cultural complex of investment and extreme independence. And I think one of the things that you're seeing in the United States that's, that has led the United States to be so far out of the, of the picture in terms of its, its ability to address climate change is this, this cultural belief system or cultural complex of high extreme individualism. Right, right. Now I'd like to come back to that in a little bit because it, it ties in with some ideas that I know you, you're interested in, in, in beliefs and in economic ideologies and so forth. Just going back to the moment, uh, when you're, as you say, you've a foot in both camps, you're seeing, you're part of a scientific community that has a way of approaching and thinking about the, the issues. You're seeing that being communicated within a policy perspective and so forth. And so, and the scientific community itself is uh, seeing that uh, not so much is happening. <laughs> you know, they can they can articulate right. and, and and show the statistics and give the evidence and so forth. So, at what point do you think that that became a a a, a real problem, or that 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 the scientific community start to say, "Hang on, w- w- why is no one listening to us?" And and what was what is your perspective on I guess some of the patterns unfolding around that? You have scientists working, we're getting more and more information. As you say, this is you know unambiguous, and yet there's there's huge polarity, and yet even the policy makers, such as they are, are lukewarm on anything that that would really provoke change. Well, this is where the power of understanding from a psychological perspective comes into to addressing that issue. You know, I think the scientific community became aware of their inability to convince the masses uh, about this issue, I would say around 15 years or so ago. And there was this idea called the information deficit model uh, for uh, conveying information to people, that if you provided people with enough information, their behavior would change. And that was clearly not working. And what came into play was the social psychology research around risk uh, assessment of risk, and that the the most important factor in people's judging whether something was risky and and changing their behavior 
wasn't the, the factual information they had. It was how they felt about it. It was the affect that came with it. And if they, if they felt strongly uh, attuned to something, and if they valued it, then they would change their behavior. They would assess something as too risky, and they would change their behavior. Well, that is exactly what Jungian psychology says. In terms of Jungian psychology, what we're talking about is bringing in a feeling valuation of a relationship to the world. If you only look at the world through one lens, which is a, say, a purely thinking rational lens, which is absolutely necessary, but if that's the only lens you look at a problem with, you're not going to be able to change people's behavior. You have to touch their hearts. You have to connect uh, them to the, the importance, the value of the thing that they're they're looking at, they're immersed in, their life, their lifestyle. Okay, so the, what flipped over the last decade in terms of climate communication was making this a, more about a human story, connecting people to not just the facts of climate change, but the implications for their personal lives, for their collective lives, for, for their children's lives. And so when you get to that shift, when you shift into that feeling realm, then the messaging changes. The way you communicate the story changes, and you can touch people at a deeper level, a more feeling level, yeah. and then you've got a better chance of shifting a person's behavior. You talk about in your book, which is a few years old now, and a very interesting book it is indeed. You have this idea that we must transform ourselves to transform the world. Right. And clearly there's a growing consensus that we do need to transform the world how and and in what particular ways and so forth and that seems to be unfolding now maybe in a way which there seems to be more momentum around that now than maybe when you mm -hmm. were researching and writing your book but i'm just wondering again coming back to the the, the your your work as a psychologist what does psychology or in particular jungian psychology help us understand about our capacity to change and and, and how are we doing <laughs> Well, I don't think we're doing very well. I mean, there, change is certainly happening, but it, given uh, the magnitude and the speed at which you know, we're, we are changing the planet, we have to be acting faster and, and on a larger scale than we are right now to avoid uh, the worst consequences of climate change. We've already committed ourselves to change, and that we can't take that back. But what we can do is act as quickly as possible to avoid any more catastrophic change in the, in the future. So, you know, there's still a lot we can do. And the question is, how do we get large numbers of people to shift their consciousness, shift their view of the world so that they're, you know, they're ready to act? Well, I think this is an, another area that Jungian psychology is important to, uh, to bring in. And that's uh, what Jung called archetypes. It's probably the most defining part of his view of the human psyche, that there are these patterns within the human psyche that are, that actually have arisen through evolution that uh, are transcend the individual. They transcend even, you know, so social structures. They're very deep seated ways that we perceive the world. You know, one of the, the deepest archetypes is uh, the mother archetype. You know, we are all born of mothers. 
It's something that is in through time. It transcends species. Uh, it's a very deep instinctual nature that's a part of us. And the, in one dimension of the mother archetype is a state of caring, to care. It's that feminine perspective that's more open and more accepting, and it provides a holding space for us. If we alienate ourselves from that, okay, uh, and we lose the ability to deeply care about the world that we're in. And the Western society and civilization in particular has been a long history of separating itself from that mother feminine archetypal dimension of the human psyche. We are essentially, we invested a tremendous amount of our psychic energy in a very patriarchal, hierarchical structural system that has separated us from the natural world. You make a great point when you say our fundamental relationship to nature is rooted in our psychological view of the world. Yes. Some people will be familiar with, you know, philosophical distinctions in terms of, you know, the distinction between subject and object, between self mm-hmm. and the world, pointing to, you know, Descartes and the Cartesian right. logic, the, the root of, of, I guess, of, of scientific endeavor. Um, I'm not so familiar or, or, or sure where you would look, what, what it means when you're saying how our relationship is rooted in our psychological view of the world. And I guess you were, you were, you were touching on that in terms of the, the, the movement away from the, the, this, the mother archetype. That's right. Yeah. In the development of our high, our, our, our rationality, and there's nothing wrong with this. You know, I'm not trying to make this uh, condemn rationality. We need rationality. What we need is a balance. And we are uh, fundamentally, we are out of balance within our own psyches, within our relationship with nature. Uh, we're out of balance within ourselves and without, of our, without ourselves. And the the manifestation of that psychological imbalance actually, very interestingly, is climate change. Because what is climate change? The reason that climate system is changing is because we have put the planet out of energetic balance with itself. By putting greenhouse gases in the atmosphere through burning of fossil fuels, we trap energy that's trying to leave the planet, and that trapped energy warms the planet. So we have put the planet out of energetic balance. Interestingly, and what I would argue from a Jungian perspective is that outer world imbalance, which is is global warming, that outer world imbalance has arisen through the imbalance within our own psyches, both individually and collectively. And that's the historical development of psyche that it's become very one-sided, that it's lost this deeper psychic connection to nature. It's in, it looks at nature as dead and animate and something that is there to serve us, the human species, uh, in whatever way possible. So this psychic imbalance is the thing that we fundamentally need to address if we're going to put ourselves back into a reciprocal, balanced relationship with the natural world. 
Right. That is the ultimate goal that the human species needs to strive for. Technology is a technological ways of generating energy that are renewable is one part of that. Okay. There, you know, understand the science through reason and rational processing is one part of that. But another part of it, which is tremendously important, which is in is so needed right now to bring us back into balance is this is the deep connection that we have with the natural world that we've lost yeah i'd love to continue with that idea in a moment i think it's very interesting and and indeed the uh, connection with the archetypes in, in that sense let's take a brief break to hear about an organization we support Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. And now we're back to today's episode. Now, how useful is it to think about the, what, what Jung calls the shadow? Maybe you could explain what that is. Mm-hmm. And whether or not, as a culture, we can see the shadow. And I know you're interested in ideologies, so we say, or ways of thinking, how they come to, to uh, grow and be sustained in particular communities and so forth. And clearly, for some time, we've lived in a, you know, the, uh, an economic system, at least, based around so-called free markets, consumerism, what we've kind of hyper-capitalism, you know, a, a very particular uh, set of e- economic values, I suppose. So I, I'm wondering if you can connect maybe uh, or, or talk a little bit about the shadow, about what your thoughts are on, on the attraction of this seductive kind of way of looking at the world. Mm-hmm. Well, shadow for Jung was all the things that uh, we don't want to accept about ourselves. We repress into the unconscious. If we don't want to admit that we have it, it falls into the unconscious. And then often what happens is we project it onto other people or other groups of people. So, you know, a good example of uh, a collective shadow is when we make a decision about, say, a technology, often we get completely captivated and fascinated by all the positive things that this technology would bring into the world. Uh, Social media is a a good example of this. You know, when the people that were creating these social media platforms, when you listen to them talk, they're, they're... filled with enthusiasm about all the great things that these social media platforms would accomplish and are accomplishing. But the question that one always should ask it along with all the good things that could happen are, what's the shadow side of this? What are the darker elements of something like uh, Facebook or, you know, Twitter or whatever the social media is? Are there any? And if there are, what are they? So it's an it's actually an ethical responsibility uh, of us <laughs> that we ask the question, where's the shadow in this? You know, when fossil fuels were first being dug up and being burned and put into the atmosphere, 
the question should have been, yes, this is giving us a tremendous resource in, in energy, uh, much more uh, reliable than anything that we've had so far. But what's the shadow side of this? You know, what are the darker aspects of this? Well, one of them was quite apparent was air pollution. You know, the quality of air in cities plummeted at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. So these are the shadow elements that we, you know, we need to ask ourselves about. Where's the shadow in the things that I'm thinking? Where are the th where's the shadow in the things that I'm creating in the world? Uh, same thing with renewable energy. You know, we should be asking, you know, right now, what are the are there any shadow sides to you know these renewable energy uh, systems that we're developing? Doesn't mean that you don't build those. Doesn't mean that you don't implement them. But you go in eyes wide open, you know, as conscious as possible with regards to all of the shadow elements that are associated with, you know, the technologies that we develop. Yes. Is there a sense with the shadow, though, it's in the unconscious? And yes, it is. Early open to rational. You know, it's not just by having a conversation where let's think about the negative side of things. I'm just wondering whether there's a, correlate, a correlation between what an individual on a Jungian healing journey in terms of what you might call integrating their shadow or becoming aware of it or so forth, what, the, what we need to do individually in, on that journey as, and, and what we need to do as a culture. Yes. Well, where do you find the shadow, you know, in terms of your work? You look at how you relate to other people, how you are looking at other people. Often you project your, your darkest parts of yourself onto others. And by looking at the relationship you have with others, you understand your shadow. I mean, for, and that translates very much so in terms of our collective behavior. You know, if a group of people look at another group of people and project their shadow onto that people, then they can decimate those that people. You know, when Europeans came to the United States and looked upon the native people here as less than, as in, you know, as evil, as uh, some a, a being lower than them, okay, they could then kill those people. They could, you know, genocide arises from proje shadow projection. When you pr collectively project your shadow onto an entire group of people, you demean them to the point where you can slaughter them, then you're looking at collective shadow projection. Okay. Yeah. And I would argue that that's, that's what's happening with nature. We project shadow onto nature, and so we can destroy it. Yes. We don't own, we don't own the instinctual shadows, the darker aspects of our nature, we project it onto the natural world, and then we can go out and slaughter it. And you know, this is what's happening with the extinction of a species in the world. We can, we can just go out and decimate an entire species, eliminate it, uh, the, a species that's been around for millions of years, because we don't look at that animal in its true you know, independent value. We project our dark shadows onto it. Yeah. 
Well, in, in your book, you, you say our ability to follow the path of transformation depends on the connection to our inner archetypal world. Can you maybe That's talk right. a little bit about what you mean there, looking at the, the path of transformation with respect to climate change, I suppose, and extinction? Yeah, well, you touched on one of the archetypes early on. Archetypes in terms of uh, cultural belief systems often appear in the stories that we tell ourselves and we believe in, the myths. You know, you know, Jung would ask, what is the living myth? What is a living, what's the living myth in a human being, in an individual? And collectively, we need to ask, that, what's the living myth that feeds us? And for me, the living myth that feeds us is, uh, the one, one aspect of it is the belief in never-ending growth. It's an element of capitalism that we can consume and consume and consume and that we need to grow economies year after year after year. That The worst thing that could happen is that an economy would stabilize and wouldn't grow. That would be a complete disaster in terms of a, that you know, collective myth of perpetual growth. So when you invest all of your, you know, collectively in the myth of perpetual growth, I mean, one shadow element of that is going to be the destruction of the planet because it's that myth of perpetual growth ignores the reality that we live on a planet of finite resources. You know, the myth of capitalism ignores the value of human labor, okay? One of the elements of capitalism is an infinite source of cheap labor. So you can outsource pr productivity to countries and pay people, you know, uh, pennies an hour uh, to create consumable goods that are exported back into richer countries to satisfy their belief in the need of perpetual growth. So there's a mythic structure that we've created. We've been living for, in it for centuries, and it's destroying us. So we have to understand the archetypal elements of that. What is an archetypal element of, of that belief and perpetual myth, well, it's, a, again, going back to the system of balance and imbalance, it's, it's the belief of continual creativity, productivity, procreativeness, that you know, life can grow and grow and grow, and there's never any de death. Okay? And this is, this is this mythic structure that uh, especially the West has, has been caught up in, is, you know, we, we, we can't really face death. One of the things that COVID is doing, you know, this is one of the things that COVID is revealing, is that shadow part of ourselves that we collectively have tried to hide from death. That there's a destructive side as well as a creative side. And we can't, things can't keep growing. You know, economies can't keep growing year after year after year. There has to be uh, something that reigns it in, something that pulls it in and balances it. How do we change our myths? To what degree, and I know this is something you're working on as well, where do we look in a society to see what new myths are emerging? But I guess the, uh, before that is this question of, you know, can we change our myths? Is this something that just kind of happens you know, with artists? I know there's various research and ideas around this in terms of periods of social change, big social change, maybe the mm -hmm. birth of modernism, those kind of mm -hmm. moments that the artists, you know, 
feel this in advance and, and are expressing these ideas and the stories and the way they communicate and so forth. I'm just wondering, have you got, I mean, big questions here, uh, but ha- have you got a sense of, of, of how we do that or where would you look now today to see the emergence of myths that, that are countervailing myths, that are myths, progressive, uh, positive myths that, that, that uh, help us deal with the, the predicament we're in? Well, yes, we, we can certainly change our myths. History, that's, if you look at history, history is a recounting of how we've changed our myths. I mean, uh, one of the biggest shifts in, in the West, mythic structure, structural change, was you know, Christianity. You know, you think about how that developed, it's, it's quite almost unbelievable that, you know, a small event, a very small local event, over a period of 100 or 200 years, exploded out of that region and transformed, you know, Rome, the Roman Empire, into, you know, a Christian-based uh, empire. That's that's an archetypal force that's unfolding there, you know, that that transformed uh, a large part of uh, the Western world at, at that point in time. I guess the question is whether that emerged, as it were, rather than consciously people were saying, well, we need new myths. No, I think it, I mean, from a Jungian perspective, these are archetypal forces. Yes. These things emerge from, you know, the depths of psyche, and and they often emerge because they're required to emerge, that a change is needed, okay? Uh, The outer social structures start to decay and fall apart, and people start to look for a new meaning. Uh, they're looking for a new sense of meaning, a new way of looking at their place as an individual and as a group. They're looking for their place in the universe, in the cosmos, in, in the world that they live in. So they're looking for a meaningful message, mm. system, that will bring order into their lives, that will bring order into their societies. And that's when these things emerge. Uh, Do you think we're seeing that change now? Yes, I do. We are in the midst of things falling apart. (laughs) We we unfortunately have the uh, chance to participate in one of those times in history where old systems are breaking down uh, the systems that we have been invested in for the last, say, 200 years or so, are no longer work. And there are more and more people asking, you know, where do I find meaning? What brings order into my life? What brings order into my you know, society? And this is the opportunity that climate change affords us. Because climate change, as I said, it's a result of this long-term imbalance with the natural world that we've uh, been living in and in exploiting. It's you know forcing us into this state of crisis that the environment that you know we're, we're disrupting is is reacting to us and it's causing tremendous disruption to our lives, to our social systems, to our economic systems. You know, the the systems that we've relied on for so long are starting to fall apart. And so this is exactly the time when we need to be looking for, you know, where are the new meanings? Where are the new archetypal images that are manifesting? And as you point out, often it's the arts 
historically it's been the artists uh, that have tapped into that creative energy and express it in the form of image that the collective can see, can, can try to understand. And so we need to be looking at what are the images, what are the stories, what are the narratives that are, are, that are appearing in the world now through the arts and through the sciences, uh, you know, the idea of complexity, that science of complexity, that's a property that appeared because we need it. We live in complex systems. We, need, we live in highly inter, interconnected systems, and we need that kind of science to understand our place in the universe, our place in the society that we live in. So all of these things are manifesting because we need them to provide us a sense of meaning, of a place, a meaning of, of why we're here, and what is our purpose. It's very interesting you say that, and, and you mentioned the, the word complex, the complexity, but presumably there are various competing new emergent myths, as it were, and, and some shadow elements in play as well. I mean, in the sense you talk about, there's a considerable populism in the world. There's a, a lot of blaming of migrants and blaming and, 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 and you know, psychological processes, I guess, projection, what you, what you talk about. And, and they happen hand in hand? Well, they are reactions to the wave of change that's coming. These are groups who want to hold on to the old myth. They don't want the new myth. They don't want a new sense of meaning. They, they want to go back to the old meaning, old forms of meaning, populism, nationalism, you know, racism. Uh, these are the old myths, <laughs> the patriarchy. These are the old myths. They don't want to let go of them. They're going to fight tooth and nail. You know, January 6th here in the United States, what happened at the Capitol, that was a group of people that don't want <laughs> a new myth. They have an old myth, and they, they're holding on to it, okay? And so that's going to continue. I don't, you know, as long as uh, the change is happening, you're going to have these reactionary groups. They're going to fight. They're going to fight uh, fiercely to hold on to their old ways, to the old myths. Yes. But it's inevitable, you know, archetypally, it's inevitable that we need a new, new myth, a new system a new cosmology. Where does power come into this? I mean, we live in a, a world, you know, greatly concentrated economic power. How does a, a Jungian perspective help us understand? One way of looking at this, you know, is in terms of the status quo, the wealth, the wealthy people mm -hmm. wanting to hold on to their wealth, as it were, and, and you know, the massive inequality. But there is, a, at the heart of it, a, a political economic question in terms of the, the, the massive corporate power, right. massive power of, of small number of, of, of billionaires and so forth. I'm just wondering, is there a Jungian perspective on, on, on that takes a power lens? Well, the most famous, one of the most famous quotes of Jung had to do with power, and it was, um, where there is power, eros is absent. And what did he mean by eros? He meant the ability to relate, the ability to connect. Uh, Eros was the god of, of of relationality. So in the moment power comes in, when somebody is seized by power, who wants power, or wants to use power, their ability to relate to the other, be it another person, be it the natural environment, be it a, another group of people, that ability of relationality is diminished. 
it, it, it's very difficult to access because you get caught up in this power complex and that's all you want to do is, is, is use your power, expend your power, be in power. And when you do that, you devalue others. You know, you disempower. That's the dynamic, power and disempowerment. And so what's required is if somebody is going to hold power and work with power, they have to develop a skill where they don't disempower others. They use their power effectively, creatively, in a positive form. And that can be done. You know, this is, it's taking raw power and transmuting it into a power that is creative. Okay. And there are people that can do that. There are people in the business world, you know, that do that. There are people in the political world that do that. And, And the challenge is we need those people to teach others how to work with power, not, you know, that power, because what power does is it consumes one. It takes over one. That's what a complex does. If you're in a power complex, your ego is pushed to the side and it's running the show. It's taken over. And it, it can be extremely destructive because you've lost the ability to connect to others, to value others, to see others. You just see them as, you know, objects to be manipulated. And, and so the challenge of working with power is entertaining, uh, how do I use power? You know, what are the uh, shadow elements of power? And where is my relationality? You know, in the moment that you're using your power, to be conscious enough to ask yourself, how does this use of power affect others? What are the implications of it, not just for this generation, but for future generations? Right. You know, but, okay, so what I'm talking about here, you know, in a Buddhist sense, I'm talking about wisdom. The ability to ask those questions and to be conscious enough, awake enough, to be able to use your power in a relational way. Okay, compassionately, to compassionately use power. That's the challenge. And because I'm seeing a picture of a group of scientists and policymakers sitting around, there has been tremendous momentum, as we said, in, in many aspects of, of climate change awareness and IPCC and a very technocratic process mm-hmm. at the heart of it as well. And, and presumably you've been sat in lots of meetings with mm-hmm. other scientists, which are very rational and technocratic. Right. How would you balance those meetings? You know, so so they've got to make decisions about the, the future and so forth. What, what kind of a approach to planning where would you recommend or how do we include processes that bring in, call it the shadow, but, you know, are, are more holistic and bring in a, a fuller picture to make better decisions in that way? Well, uh, you know, I'm going to be very biased here and say that, you know, the people who haven't been sitting at the table when those discussions take place are individuals who are trained in working, you know, in clinical ways with power, with uh, imbalance, with psychological disturbances, with human behavior in effective, creative ways. You know, this is, again, there's an imbalance present in the way we've been trying to address this issue. It has been predominantly through a purely, you know, scientific, rational, linear uh, way. 
And that, again, is necessary, but it is not sufficient to deal with a problem like climate change. You know, this is not your typical science problem where you're trying to figure out the mass of an elementary particle, okay? This is a problem that is a human problem. It arose from human behavior. It continues to manifest through human behavior. It's affecting human lives. And so we have to bring in, you know, psyche into the discussion. We have to people, have people sitting at the table who are deeply connected to these issues of shadow, behavior, affect, you know, the complexes that we can fall into, the projections that we can project onto others. All of those psychological dynamics are present in the issue of climate change. And if you're going to holistically, in a more integrated fashion, deal with this issue of climate change, and not just in a you know, symptomatic way, let's treat the symptom, let's alleviate the symptom and try to move on. If you really want to address this problem in a deeply integral, holistic fashion, you have to include people that have a tradition of relating to others and the world in, in other than purely rational scientific ways. You know, I, I would include uh, first and foremost in that indigenous peoples yeah. who have lived more in balance with the world through time, through history. And, you know, the, what are their practices? What do they have to bring to the conversation? Yeah. So if we're going to really address this problem, it can't just be a room full of, uh, by the way, it's mostly men <laughs> sitting in <laughs> <Yeah>. those rooms. <laughs> you know, it's mostly white men sitting in those rooms, sitting around talking about, you know, what are the technical details that are needed to address this problem? Yeah. You know, we need people who are going to approach this from a heart-centered, a psyche-centered, an indigenous-centered, a reciprocity-centered approach to uh, addressing these problems. They have to be equal partners in discussing how we're going to deal with climate change. That's a fascinating vision. Your work still at the heart of, a, you know, uh, I guess, the scientific complex. Do you see change coming? Because you know, I suppose one of the conclusions of, of, of Freud's psychology, of insights in psychology is, you know, we're not in charge of our own house. You know, the, right. the, we talked about the unconscious and so forth. And we live in a, an age of reason. There's, you know, it, it's at least the watchword in, in, in institutional life. And science in particular upholds those values. Do you see change coming there? Are, are you seeing you know, scientific thinkers, figures that, that are respected, figures that you respect, starting to say, well, you know, science is, is, is wonderful, but we need to integrate, you know, other, other lenses, other ways of approaching uh, this. A lot, of, a lot of professional life is very siloed and, and people are working mm -hmm. in very narrow fields where they have great expertise. Presumably you're talking about kinds of things that are much more cross-sectoral, bringing lots of people with different skills together and, 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 and values and so forth. But at the heart of that, you are presumably you've got to have people saying, well, this is of value. You know, this will enhance the way we look at these situations. Right. Well, from a just a purely personal perspective first i you know i started many years ago when i 
was making these discoveries about how to communicate science in a different way to, to the public, that is bringing in the feeling. You know, when I give a talk on climate science, I'll talk about the, the science for about 20 minutes. And then I'll stop and I ask, how are you feeling? I would, I'm really interested in how you in this audience are feeling. And typically what happens is there's dead silence because they're not expecting to be asked that question. But after a few moments, people start to open up and they start to share you know, their feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, anger, guilt. I mean, there's a whole uh, spectrum of feelings that come with this traumatic message of climate change. Uh, and it's th there's a healing in that. There's healing in just as a collective, as a group, sharing one's feelings about this issue. So I always encourage people to talk about not just the science, but how people are feeling about what's happening in the world. And it's not that you have to even do anything about it. It's just giving expression to, with others, your feelings around this issue. That's the first step in, in a healing process. So I've encouraged my colleagues, uh, scientific colleagues, to first of all, talk about themselves from a human perspective. That is, tell the audience you know, who they are as a person. How did they become a scientist? You know, go back to their, often that goes back to when they were a child and they became fascinated with nature. Uh, that immediately connects a bridge to the audience that's, that's important for connecting people to the message of climate change. And then if they're, if they're comfortable enough to ask people, how do they feel about the science that they're conveying? So there's a lot we can do in terms of getting the message out in a different way. It's more relational. It's more human. Yeah. It's and it's all about story, you know. Telling people, telling their personal story. You asked me at the beginning of this, how did you get to be a scientist and a Jungian analyst? I mean, asking that question or or relaying that to an audience can you know that there's an empathic attunement that occurs when we tell stories. We know this from you know, psychology. So there's that, okay? And then, you know, where are there other signs of hope, uh, of transformation that are occurring on this sort of feeling level? Well, I, you know, I have to say Greta's appearance a few years ago, there isn't, I mean, that's an archetypal story from a Jungian perspective. She's carrying a tremendous amount of energy uh, that's raising consciousness around this issue. Millions more people are interested or active or have become activists because of her awareness, a personal awareness. And that shows you how a single individual can lead to uh, a collective awareness and transformation. So, you know, these things are happening. You know, the stories that we hear in, in with regards to advancements in in renewable energy technology. You know, it seems like every other week there's a new story that comes up about new ways of, of generating clean energy. Those are also positive dimensions to, and there are, those, those are people, those are people committed to making a difference. Yeah. People committed 
to helping us prevent the worst of worsts in the future. So there's human stories there to be told. So I, you know, I would encourage that human element to be brought more and more into the picture. Now, the, one of the things that I would like to see, and there, there is some movement in this area. I just it was just a uh, an event a couple of weeks ago around this, and that is the storytellers, the people who, the artists who are creating stories through film, through theater, through music, uh, whatever media they're using to convey their stories, to use their imaginations to create stories about a future that we actually want to live in, a future that will provide us with a sense of meaning. Okay. In other words, I encourage people to use their imagination to find the new living myth that's going to replace the ones that are falling apart and no longer work. That's really, I think, where we need to be investing our energy. And those stories, again, those stories cannot just be rooted in science. Those stories have to be rooted in the humanities, in the arts, in the soul of the world, okay? Yes, but I'm just wondering, you talk about the importance of of imagining the future. It does seem to be a moment where the future's been colonized by manifold, very many uh, dystopian visions. That's right. Yeah, yeah. from a Jungian perspective, again, is that something you would expect at this stage in the change of, of underlying myths? Is this part of a process where you would expect that uh, when a set of ideas have come to an end, a set of ways of approaching and thinking about things. Yes, it is interesting that we, you know, when we look out into the future in terms of literature, film, uh, there's a preponderance of dystopian stories and images in those uh, that are created. So what is happening there? Why does the psyche uh, want to look at the worst possible outcomes rather than, you know, uh, the more positive outcomes in the future. I don't think I have a complete answer to that. Now, if I did, I would have written about it. I I, I have to invite you back for the, as, as your research continues. I mean, I have thoughts on it. And there are, I mean, there are people that, are, you know, uh, psychologists have said, well, this is one of the ways that we prevent those scenarios from happening. We imagine what all the bad things that could happen in the future. Yes. So that we can psychologically work out ways to not manifest those dystopian dystopian worlds. Yes. Yes, absolutely. We'll talk again. What is your your research at the moment focusing on? Well, I'm really interested in this issue of, you know, from a collective cultural level, you know, these transitions through history in in belief systems and living myths. Uh, you know, is how have they happened in the past? And what role were the arts playing in illuminating the, the myths that appeared in time? So I, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this in terms of like archetypal art history. You know, what are the manifestations in the art world that are archetypally based that are connected to social transformations through time? And then the question is, where are we now with such a process? Yeah. If such a process is occurring, where are we now? Uh, what are the images that are appearing that are 
are telling us about the collective transformation that's in consciousness that's occurring right now, because I think that's clearly what I feel we need is a, a, a transformation in our uh, consciousness around, in particular, our relationship to the world that we live in, the natural world. It's a wonderful, inspiring project. Thank you so much for your time today, sharing your fruit of your research, your work, your wisdom, your commitment, and uh, I wish you all the best in the future. Well, thank you, Fergal. I appreciate you opening your conversation to a Jungian analyst about climate change. If you like what you heard today on the Sustainability Agenda, we think you'll enjoy Roman Krisnarek's thought-provoking new book, The Good Ancestor, How to Think Long-Term in a Short-Term World, which explores how we need to expand our time horizons to become good ancestors and plan and take action that will resonate over the coming decades, centuries. Available online and in all good bookstores. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.